0: Good morning, West Park. If you will, if you have your Bible, please turn with me to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. We're going to be studying the passage that Don read for us earlier. As you're turning there, I was thinking this week, there's something that I am really excited about this summer. Here in a couple weeks, the Olympics are back. Hey, anyone, anyone like that? Anyone watch the Olympics? All of a sudden, we become really interested in these sports that we usually don't care about, and it's awesome, right? And so, love the Olympics, looking forward to that. Um, and I was thinking of, of the, the story of the Olympics that I think about the most, because there's a lot of great stories, right? There's all these heroes, you know, Michael Phelps, Simone Biles, these people who just have become heroes to us because of what they achieved at the Olympics. But there's one story, and I heard, I heard this story years ago, and I think about it often. And it's a story uh, that I bet you haven't heard before, and it's probably an athlete that you haven't heard about. Um, his name is, is Matthew Emmons, and here's Matthew's story. There's Matthew right there, you can see him. So Matthew is a sharpshooter. And so Matthew, his story is that uh, he always dreamed of representing the United States in the Olympics, and he finally achieved that goal in 2004 in Athens. And so he finally got to go and represent his country. And he, so he was, he achieved this goal, he got to go. But not only that, he was actually that year and a couple years before that was by far the best sharpshooter in the world. And so he was heading to, he was heading to Athens, he was heading to the Olympics, and he was by far the favorite to win gold. And so he got there and, and you know, all his whole life, all his training had built up to this point, but the nerves didn't get to him at all. He was killing it, killing it. Like, it was, it was his day. The best day that he has ever shot came on the biggest stage in the Olympics in Athens. He was doing so good, and it just also, sharp shooting, just so you know how this goes, super simple. You have a gun, you have a target, and you're trying to hit bullseyes, right? That's what he's doing, and he's killing it. He was killing it, so much so that he got to the end, and he was pretty much guaranteed a medal. All he had to do was hit the target. If he hit the target anywhere, he medaled, and that's easy for an Olympian, right? All he had to do was hit the target. If he got even close to the bullseye, he goes home with gold. Biggest shot of his life, bunch of pressure. Everything's riding on that one moment. As so here's Matthew Emmons, he's 23 at this point. Been working for this day his whole life. And he finds the target in his sight. And he takes a deep breath. He's about to pull the trigger for the biggest shot of his life. He takes aim, he shoots, and he nails it. Nails it. Perfect bullseye. (laughs) Perfect shot. Exactly where he was aiming. And then he looks up at the scoreboard. He looks for his name and he finds it beside eighth place. Shot a bullseye, came in eighth place. Perfect shot, exactly where he was aiming. Here's the problem. He was focused at the wrong target. (laughs) He was aiming at the target next to his. So he did exactly what he was trying to do. It just turns out he was focused in the wrong place. The reason I think about that story a lot is because it's a really great sermon illustration. Because it's, it, it's perfect, right? It's perfect, because here's the thing. As Christians, we know what the target is. It's Jesus, but it's easy to get off target. And we're going to see today in our passage, there's actually two ways to get off target. And the dangerous thing is, it's easy to get off target and not actually know it. And so let's study our passage. Let's look at Luke chapter 15, and here's what we're going to do. We're going to be studying verses 11 through 32, But we're actually going to go back and we're going to start just talking about verses 1 and 2. Okay, because this is going to give us important context for what's going on here. So here's Luke 15, verses 1 and 2. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Okay, so that's super important. We have to know that this is the context for Jesus' story. Luke tells us that there are two groups who are listening to Jesus. He says it's the tax collectors and sinners, and then the Pharisees and scribes. So who are these people? Sam talked a lot about this last week, so I won't go into too much detail. But just by by reminder, the tax collectors and sinners were the moral outcasts. Right? They were the ones who who had totally done away with the mor- morality of their childhood. They were the rebels. They were the ones looking for self-fulfillment at all cost. They're the ones who seemingly have just abandoned God. But they're also the ones that throughout the gospels, they seem they are really drawn to Jesus. <laughs> they are really drawn to him. There's a magnet where they see something in him and they can't help just but but just go to him. So they draw near to him. And then there are the Pharisees and the scribes. These are the opposite of that. They're the the religious leaders. They're the ones who have held to the traditional morality of their upbringing. They're the ones who know scripture inside and out. They're the ones who worship God faithfully. And we're supposed to notice right up front that these two groups are polar opposites of each other. The sinners and the tax collectors would have been looked down upon by everyone as dirty, unclean, not good. And then we have the Pharisees and we have the scribes. And it's the opposite. They're looked up to. They're seen as the epitome of godliness. The word Pharisee literally means the one who is separated. And so with this group, it's just, they're just better than everyone else. They're just better than everyone else. They're separated from everyone else. And as you can kind of imagine, the dynamic between them is pretty awkward, right? The good guys, the Pharisees... They look down upon these bad guys. They look down upon the ones who have abandoned God. And it says they can't even believe that Jesus would be with these people. They grumble and they they say, Jesus receives sinners and eats with them. And they can't believe that because Jesus claims to be a religious teacher, yet he's hanging out with the wrong crowd. And so Jesus is right in the middle of a a really awkward social dynamic. What's he going to say? How's he going to respond? Well, he responds the way he often responds, by telling stories, right? If you were here last week, you can think back. He's going to tell three stories here. The first story he tells is a a shorter one. It's about a sheep that gets lost, and a shepherd leaves the 99 to go find it. Then he tells a similar story about a woman who loses a coin and then tears her house upside down just just to find it. It looks everywhere to go get it. And then he tells a third story, and it's the most famous one, right? Don mentioned this earlier. It's it's almost cliche at this point because we hear it so often, whether you're in the church or not. It's just become a part of our vocabulary as a culture. And we call it the parable of the prodigal son, right? The parable of the prodigal son. But we're actually going to see that it's not just a story about one son. There's two sons, right? There's two brothers, and that makes sense when you think about the context, because who's Jesus talking to? Two groups. Two groups. And he's addressing both of them. They're meant to represent his listeners. The younger brothers represent, or represent the tax collector and the sinners. The older brother represents the religious leaders that are listening. And so to reflect this, Jesus tells the parable in two acts. In verses 11 through 24, he talks about the younger brother. And then in verses 25 through 32, he talks about the older brother. So we're going to jump into Act 1. And the way we're going to do this is I'm just going to read a little bit and then stop and talk about it, and we'll work through the whole story. So read a little bit and talk, and we'll just keep going like that. So let's just start here with the first two verses, verses 11 and 12. It says this, And Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. All right, stop there. So a man has two sons, a younger son and an older son. And the younger son comes to him with kind of a strange request. He comes to him and he says, give me my inheritance. Give me my inheritance. Now, that's shocking, right, for a younger son to do this. Because here's the thing. He was right to expect an inheritance, there were rules about this, okay? The way this would work, if a father had two sons, then the older son would have gotten two-thirds of everything, and the younger son would have got one-third. So this guy's right to understand, I'm getting one-third of what my dad has. But an inheritance comes after the father's dead, right? It comes after he's dead. But he walks up and he says, I'm not waiting for that. Give it to me now. I want my inheritance now. Now. That's heartbreaking. If you have kids, can you picture how heartbreaking that is? Because what's that saying? It's saying, you're dead to me. (laughs) Right? That's that's literally what it is. It's, It's a son spitting in his father's face saying, I don't want you. I just want your stuff. I don't want you. I just want your stuff. You're dead to me. You're dead to me. And that's heartbreaking when you think about your kids. It's even more heartbreaking when we remember who the father represents in this story. The older brother represents the Pharisees. The younger brother represents the tax collectors and sinners. The father represents God. And so this is a picture of complete rejection of God. Looking at God and saying, I don't want you. I just want your stuff. That's what just happened here. I don't want you. I just want your stuff. This son makes a shocking request. But maybe even more shocking, the father agrees to it, right? The father agrees to it. He would have to sell off one-third of his land, but that's what he does. And here's what's crazy. The word that's translated there in our ESV as property, it's the Greek word bios. Bios, you probably know that one, right? Bios, it's biology. It means life. It's saying Jesus wants us to feel the weight of this. He gives him one-third of his life. We're supposed to feel that this is ripping his heart out to see his son do this. To give his son this inheritance and see him walk away is ripping his heart out. It's painful. He's given him his life. Let's pick up in verse 13. Verse 13. It says this. Not many days later... But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Stop there. So his younger son, he takes his inheritance and he heads to a distant country, and he completely blows it all. He squanders it. And that is why we call him the prodigal son, right? See, a lot of us, we think when we hear, we've heard this story so much, we think that prodigal means wayward, but it doesn't. The actual definition of prodigal is to be recklessly extravagant, okay? So the word prodigal in our passage is translated there in verse 13 as reckless, okay? That's what makes him prodigal is that he goes off and he's recklessly extravagant. He spends all of his father's stuff recklessly. And just as is always the case in sin, it doesn't end well. (laughs) And this boy's life starts to spiral out of control. He spends all of his money, and then when things can't get any worse, a famine comes, right? And everything with the economy turns upside down. And he has to get a job working with the pigs, now, I think for us, right, when we think about working in the field with the pigs, that's gross, right? We, we see that as a, as a demeaning job, a gross job. But you have to also remember here, who's Jesus' audience? The Jews. And to the Jews, the pigs were as unclean an animal as you can possibly have. And so Jesus is trying to paint a really vivid picture here of rock bottom. If you're a Jew and you hear this story of working with the pigs wanting to eat their food, you look at that and you say, this guy has hit absolute rock bottom. Things are going as bad as they can possibly go. And he's so desperate, he has to do the thing he never wanted to do. He has to go home and ask for help. That's his only option to even stay alive. He has to go home and ask for help. So he comes up with a plan. Out there, in the mud... With the pigs, he comes up with his plan, and here's what he's gonna do. He knows that he can't go home and ever be a son again. That's out of the question. But maybe he can work there. Maybe he can be a servant. Maybe his dad will at least give him a job. And so, can't you picture this? He's out there in the fields with the pigs. And he's rehearsing his speech, right? He's rehearsing his speech. And when he thinks he has it just right, he starts the long walk home. And he's rehearsing his speech. i got to get every word right. Every word right. i got to nail this. And maybe, maybe my dad will have sympathy on me. Just maybe. Look at verse 20. And this again, let me, again, this story has become so cliche because we hear it all the time. But take everything we just talked about and then think about how amazing this is in verse 20. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Wow, right? Don't, let me read that again. Don't let that just not be amazing. Okay, this is, this is crazy. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. All that the son had put his father through, but he'd still been watching for him. Standing on the porch day after day, hoping to see him walk into town. He wished him dead. He humiliated him. He took all his stuff and he ran off but through it all the father hadn't stopped loving him. He hadn't given up on him. And when the father sees him he can't help but just run to him. That's amazing. That's amazing. Let me just stop. Let me just stop here. Let me ask. How do you picture God's heart towards you? How do you picture God's heart towards you? Here's what I mean. I don't want the a good theological answer. I don't want you just to to say what the Bible says. I'm asking about you, sitting here right now. How do you think God feels about you? Let me take it a step further. When you've blown it, picture picture your rock bottom. Maybe you're there right now. When you've been there, when you have rejected God, how do you think He feels about you? Is it like this? (laughs) Do you picture this father showing compassion, running to you with his arms open? Is that what you picture? Because that's the image Jesus is giving. That's what he's teaching us here. That's what he's teaching us here. He says, how does God feel about you? Check this out. Check this out. You've rebelled. You've wished him dead. You've done things your own way. And you think all your bridges have been burned. But God never stopped loving you. He never stopped loving you. The son didn't know it, but even when he was living with the pigs, the father still loved him. The same is true for each of us. Your sin does not cancel God's love for you. Maybe you're at rock bottom right now. That's okay. We just see, see it here. God loves to use rock bottom, right? He loves to use rock bottom to bring people back to himself. And if you run to him, the father stands ready to take you back into his loving arms. No matter what you've done, no matter what you're currently involved in, he will welcome you back home. In this story, it's awesome. Look at verse 21. I love this. You picture picture him. Got to get the words right. Got to get the words right. Got to give this speech just perfectly. Got to convince him to welcome me back. And the father won't even hear it. Here's verse 21. And the son said to him, father. When we blow it, we think we got to clean ourselves up to run to God. But we see here that's not true. This kid shows up ashamed, in dirty rags, and the father brings the best robe, and he welcomes him back into the family. Our God is rich in mercy. Rich in mercy. Listen to this. This is Dane Ortland. He says this in his book, Gentle and Lowly. He says that God is rich in mercy, it means the things about you that make you cringe most make him hug hardest. It means his mercy is not calculating and cautious like ours. It is unrestrained, flood-like, sweeping, magnanimous. It means our haunting shame is not a problem for him, but the very thing he loves most to work with. It means our sins do not cause his love to take a hit. Our sins cause his love to surge forward all the more. It means on that day, when we stand before him, quietly, unhurriedly, we will weep with relief, shocked at how impoverished a view of his mercy-rich heart we had. Hmm. The Father responds with mercy. He is a merciful God. And not only that, he throws him a really awesome party, right? They kill the fattened calf. They all eat and drink and celebrate because the sun has returned. The whole town is celebrating. The lost son is home. It's an absolutely beautiful story. But we're supposed to notice there's one person missing. There's one the whole town is at this party. There's one person missing. Let's pick up in verse 25. It says now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found." So the artist, Rembrandt, one of his most famous paintings was his take on this story. So you can see it there. I've been looking at this a lot this week. It's just beautiful, right? It's beautiful. And here's what I've noticed. When I see this picture, when I see this painting, my eyes go straight to the son and his father. It's awesome, right? That's, that's exactly, I just can't help but look at that. But you'll notice... Off to the right, there's another guy. And he doesn't seem very happy. (laughs) He's not celebrating what's happening. He's looking on not happy. Now, here's what's interesting. That's that's the older brother. Now, uh, Rembrandt took some creative license here because the older brother isn't actually there when the younger brother comes back. So he's he's taking a little different spin on it, but he's making a really important point. Our eyes in this story go straight to the prodigal and his dad. Rightfully so. It's beautiful. It's moving. It's a great story. But throughout the whole story, the older brother lurks in the background. And he has a very different perspective. We celebrate. Everyone celebrates. The whole town celebrates. He's bitter. He hates it. He doesn't like what just happened. And so this week, because you know, he's the one we don't talk about very often, I've tried to get into his head. How does he view this story that we love so much? And so I did this little exercise, and so I'm going I'm to read it to you. I just sat down, and I just wrote the story that we just read and studied, but I wrote it from the older brother's point of view. Okay? And so this is what I think, if you ask the older brother about what just happened, what we just studied, here's what I think he would say. Okay? That guy right there looking on here's how I think he would describe what just happened. I have never been more angry than I am right now. He's home. And not only that, my father has welcomed him home with open arms. It's like my father doesn't even remember what he put him through. But I haven't forgotten, asking for his inheritance early, Abandoning us, blowing dad's money on prostitutes. It just goes to show he only thinks about himself. That's all he's ever thought about is himself. I mean, if you could have just seen my poor father day after day after day standing on the porch waiting on him, that poor old man wouldn't give up. I told him every day, give up, he's not coming back. But he wouldn't give up. But that brings us to today. He's home. And you know, I wish I had seen him first. Since he left, I've been thinking about what I would say to him, and I know exactly what I would do. I would have looked him straight in the face, and I would have told him the truth. That there's no place for him in our family. He doesn't even deserve to be in the same room as our dad. He doesn't deserve it. But unfortunately, I didn't see him first. I was doing what I always do. I was working. I was doing what honorable men do. And then I came in and I heard the music. And I asked one of the servants, What's going on? But I already knew. He was back. And dad saw him first. Dad saw him first. Call me crazy, but I, for one, believe that people should get what they deserve. I've worked hard for my father every single day. I've never disobeyed him. He owes me. But ask me how many parties he's thrown for me. Zero. I deserve a fattened calf every day. But he won't even give me a goat. But for him, he does this. So I refuse to go to the party. I wasn't going to give him or my father the satisfaction I wanted to make sure they know my position on the whole thing. And my position is that I'm angry. (laughs) I don't think it's right. I mean, I was so angry that I could just feel my fists balling up. I was so angry, I just wanted to scream. I can't even put into words how angry I was. And then my dad came and found me. He left the party to come find me. And let me tell you, when I saw him, I didn't hold back. I let him know what I was thinking. I let him know that it was unfair. I told him I deserved better. I reminded him of all the things I had done for him and I totally unloaded everything that I was feeling. And I fully expected him to respond the same way. I fully expected him to respond the same way. He's always been slow to anger. But the way I disrespected him, how could he not? Here's something I can't stop thinking about. When I looked into my father's eyes, I didn't see anger. I saw love. And he looked at me, and he said something in a soft voice, and I I, I can't remember what it was. I, I was too mad. But I remember that he pleaded with me to come in, and then he went back to the party. The party's still going on. It's been going on for a few days. I'm still outside. And honestly, I don't know what I'm going to do. So one story, two very different perspectives, right? Two very different perspectives. A father who celebrates, an older brother who can't help but just be bitter. What's Jesus' point? What's the point? We need to go back to the very beginning, the context, in verse 2. Who's Jesus telling this parable to? Who's he telling this parable to? He's responding to the grumbling of the scribes and Pharisees. And so that's who the story's for. It's primarily for the older brothers. It's primarily for the older brothers in the crowd. And that's why he ends the story the way he does. This parable doesn't have a happy ending. It ends on a cliffhanger. The older brother has to decide whether he's going to join the party or not. And so it's crazy the way the story starts. The bad guy, right? The one who ran off with all the money. He's in the party. He's no longer alienated from the father. He's back in a relationship with him. But the good boy, he's outside the party. He's alienated from God. And so with this story, Jesus is challenging us to do something radical. He wants us to rethink sin. He wants us to totally rethink sin. We need to rethink what it means to be lost and alienated from God. Here's the thing. When, when I was in college, God used this parable to totally change my life and totally change the direction of my life. Because here's the thing. I grew up here. Okay? Basically my whole life, I grew up here. So I knew the gospel. right? I knew the gospel. The gospel was preached to me every Sunday, every Wednesday, and a lot of other times too. It was just I knew the gospel, and I knew that I was a sinner. I understood that. I fully understood that, but here's what I didn't understand. I knew I was a sinner, but I didn't think I was that bad of a sinner. And there were a lot of other people that I could point to who are a lot worse sinners than me. And so I would read this story, or I would hear this story preached, and I would say, this is a good story. I like this, but I would look around, I would say, I hope these people hear it. (laughs) Because there there are a lot of prodigals in this room, and I know it, there are a lot of prodigals in this room who need to come home. And some of you all, that's you right now. (laughs) You've done that to this point in the sermon. You don't understand how this story relates to you. Well, everything changed when I was given a book that has been one of the most influential books to me in my entire life. It's called The Prodigal God by Tim Keller. I would check it out. Okay, yeah, i quote Tim Keller a lot. I like him a lot. But this book totally changed my life. Because in this book, Keller shows how in this story, it's a beautiful story about a son coming back to a father. But in this story, Jesus is redefining what sin is and what repentance is. Think about this. In Act 1... The story of the younger brother, we get an obvious illustration of sin. Right? We read that story and we see dishonoring your father, prostitutes, reckless living, seeking self-fulfillment at all cost. And we look at that and we say sin. That's sin. Right? That's e- yeah, that's easy. That's sin. If we do any of those things. We're pretty quick to look at ourselves and say sin. Yeah, I'm a sinner. But then in the second act, Jesus turns the tables because we find out that both sons are actually lost. Both sons are alienated from the father. To go back to our original illustration, it turns out that both sons are missing the target. But here's the dangerous thing. The older brother doesn't know it. The older brother thinks he's hitting a bullseye and he's going to come in eighth place because both brothers have used the father to get what they really wanted. One of them did it by being really bad. The other did it by being really good. The younger son is super obvious about it. He walks up to the father and he says, you're dead to me. Give me my inheritance. I only want you for your stuff. But the older brother did exactly the same thing. He rejected the father, but he did it through being good. He followed the father's rules, but he never actually wanted the father. He just wanted his stuff. And here's what this is. This is so important. This is so important. This is showing us that there's actually two ways to be your own Lord and Savior. You can be the younger brother and make life all about self-fulfillment and getting what you want. But you can also reject Jesus through self-righteousness. By doing all the right things so that you don't need a Savior. So that you don't need Him. Flannery O'Connor, the author Shows this perfectly in one of her novels. Novels. She said this. She's talking about one of her characters. She said, There was already a deep, black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. The way to avoid Jesus is to avoid sin. That's being the older brother. That's it. (laughs) It's the belief that if I read my Bible, if I join a church, if I give my money... If I live a good life, then God owes me. It's the belief that you can control God through doing good. If you're an older brother, you obey. You do. You you obey. You, You do what God asks. But you don't do it out of love for him. You do it to use him. You do it to put him in your debt. All of your obedience is to get what you really want. But it isn't God. It isn't God. Is what led Charles Spurgeon to say this. The greatest enemy to human souls is the self-righteous spirit which makes men look to themselves for salvation. Amen. That's dangerous, right? That's dangerous. One example of sin, that's obvious. You know when you're missing the mark. This is easy to be deceived. That you can come to church, that you can tithe, that you can serve That you can lead groups, that you can check all the boxes, and still be rejecting God. That's scary. That's scary. But Jesus is telling this parable for us, for church people, right? It's a warning to us. So we have to rethink sin. And not only do we have to rethink sin, if we're going to rethink sin, we also need to rethink repentance. We have to rethink repentance. Because here's the thing. We often only think of one side of repentance. We think of repentance as what the younger brother did. He goes off, he makes mistakes, he comes back to the father, and he brings his list. And he says, here's all the things I did wrong, forgive me. And so that's what we think repentance is. We go to God and we get out our list and we say, I'm sorry I gossiped. I'm sorry I was impatient. I'm sorry for that sexual sin I'm entangled in. I'm sorry. And that is repentance. Absolutely. Don't hear me wrong. That that is repentance. Absolutely. But it has to go deeper than that. Because remember, remember in this story, the older brother is lost, right? The older brother is lost. But then what does he say? The father comes to him and he says, I have never disobeyed you. And the father doesn't disagree. This older brother has nothing on his list. Now, obviously, older brothers sin. Older brothers do wrong, and we must repent of those things. But here's what older brothers miss. We also must repent of doing the right things with the wrong motivations. We have to repent of doing the right things with the wrong motivations. And that's why Jesus uses the older brother to represent the Pharisees. I've heard it said talking about the Pharisees that the main barrier between them and God wasn't their sin. It was their damnable good works. They rejected God by doing good. They rejected God by being their own Savior and not thinking they needed Jesus. They needed to repent of doing good things with the wrong motivation. So That leaves us with one last question. One last question. Because this story is taking aim at everyone, right? No one gets out of here unscathed. If you're an older brother, you're a rule follower, you're a sinner too. You're a sinner too. So here's the question. If everyone is lost, if rule breakers and rule followers are all lost, how can we be found? How can we be found? Well, first of all, Jesus' story shows us that we need God to love us first. Notice in the story, the father lovingly initiates with both sons. He goes out to both sons. He goes out to the younger brother and he kisses him before he ever repents. He doesn't love the son because he repents. The son loves because the father first loved him. And don't miss this. This is is awesome when you think about it. This is so cool. The father goes out to the older brother as well. And this is so cool to think that Jesus is telling this story, and think about who he's telling it to, the Pharisees, the scribes. He's telling it to them, and think about what else Jesus knows. He's about to die. He's about to die. And you know what else Jesus knows? He knows he's going to have him killed. He knows he's going to have him killed. He's heading to Jerusalem, and he tells this story to the Pharisees and the scribes, inviting them into the party. Jesus, picture this, knowing full well, looking into the eyes of the people who are about to murder him, and he's oozing with love. You're welcome in. Come in. The Father will welcome you with open arms. This story is an invitation to everyone. Maybe you're the younger brother, and you're down with the pigs right now. And that's why you're here, to find hope, Maybe you're the older brother and you've been trying to be your own savior. You've been coming here for decades. But you've been doing it to try to get God in your debt. The story makes it clear, either way you're outside the party. You're outside the party. Is God inviting you in this morning? Is he inviting you in this morning? I'll close with this. Remember there are two stories that Jesus tells before this one. And both of them involve something being lost. And then something going, someone going out to find it. So a sheep gets lost. A shepherd goes to find it. A coin gets lost. A woman goes to find it. But here that doesn't happen. The sun runs off and no one goes looking for him. And that just goes straight over our head. But culturally, Jesus' hearers would have recognized what happened. The older brother didn't do his job. He didn't do his job. It was clear If you have a prodigal, run off. If you have a wayward son, run off. Someone go out and just blow everything, just go try to blow up their life. Someone was supposed to go get him. It was the oldest son in the family. It was his job. He had to go bring him back and bring back honor to his family. But in this story, no one goes to get the brother in the far country. No one goes. But here's what Jesus is doing. He wants to show us something. He's holding up an example of a bad older brother to point us to the fact that we have a really good older brother. The Bible tells us that our older brother is the one telling this story. Jesus is our older brother. And guess what he did? (laughs) He did his responsibility, right? He came from heaven to earth. He came from heaven to earth to the far country to get us. And he lived the perfect life that we could not live. And then he died the death that we deserve on a criminal's cross. So Jesus is inviting everyone in, and he holds up this bad example of an older brother to say, I'm a good older brother, and I've come to get you. I've come to get you. And so that leaves us with two questions and some good news. Think about this. Question one. Are you an older brother or are you you a younger brother? Which are you? Are you an older brother or a younger brother? Maybe a mixture of both. I don't know. How are you rejecting God? How do you reject God? And here's question two. What do you need to repent of? What do you need to repent of? Maybe it's sexual sin. Maybe it's lying. Maybe it's cheating. Maybe it's stealing. Maybe it's something like that. Younger brother sins. Or maybe you need to repent of doing the right things with the wrong motivation and trying to earn God's love, trying to control him. And then finally, the good news. No matter what your answers were, Jesus took that on the cross. No matter what your answers were, whether you reject him as an older brother or a younger brother, he died for younger brothers and older brothers alike. And so we can run to the Father. We can run to the Father. That's the theme of our morning, run to the Father. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing a couple songs here just to respond to that. To first of all, talk about how amazing it is that we can run to the Father, and then to celebrate our older brother who came to the far country to get us because we were hopeless without him. Let me pray. Dear Lord, I, I thank you for this story. Jesus, you are a master storyteller. Thank you for the image that we get here of, of the Father who loves us so much. And I just want to pray, first of all, that we will believe that. Sometimes we, we hear about your love for us so much that it just stops even losing its power. And that's a, that's a shame. I pray that we will just awaken that in us, how amazing it is that you love us like this. We thank you for our, older, for our older brother who came to get us and lived the life we couldn't live and died the death that we deserve. And I pray that if anyone doesn't know him this morning, you'll bring them to yourself. Lord, we love you. We thank you.